everybody, this is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. And I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, the co-host and producer of Voices, and with an old friend, Tim Bratton, who wants to be a fly on the wall, but we're going to bring him in on the microphone to sing later. But, uh, and to do a whole news analysis of the Middle Eastern situation. But uh, Tim is actually a, a friend. I met him on a walking path and uh, around Griffith Park, and we've become very good friends. And he works at a very high-profile supermarket, and he was voted checker of the year. Uh, and we just become good friends, and he does listen to voices. And he said, could I stay in studio one time? So, Tim... Very nice to have you in studio. Thank you for having me. Okay. That's all you have to say. How's that? Just say. Thank you much. Thank uh, you for having me. Okay. Appreciate it. And in other listeners, by the way, if you like voices and you'd like to come in studio and hang around with me and Channing, we'd love to have you. Uh, you can send me an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com and we'll accommodate you. Okay? So we'd like to see that we have listeners. And it helps us to have you physically in studio with us. So today we have two important struggles because, again, this show is called Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement-building show. So our specialty, if this is your first time listening, is people out in the world doing things. That's what we're about, not critics, not observers, not professors, unless those professors are organizing on the campuses. Not news commentators, not talking heads, but people doing things. So Channing is going to talk first about Yvette Ade, who's going to be working on trying to get rid of the, the women's prison. And then I'll be talking a lot with leaders of the United Teachers of Los Angeles uh, about the strike, because Nina Simone was saying, here comes the sun. And... Uh, Give the teachers credit. They've been marching in the rain and bringing out the sun politically. So we will, and then we want to go to the phones later in the show, 818-985-5735, probably around 340, um, to talk about both issues, the women's prisons, and especially, if I may say, if you're a parent, a teacher, if you're out on strike, if you're a student staying home because of the strike, We'd love to know what you understand about the strike. Do you support the strike, which the Strategy Center does, and I'll say a few things about it later. So with that, I'll turn it over to Channing Martinez and to Yvette. So uh, hi, Yvette. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Voices. Channing, thank you for having me. Great. 
So why don't we start with you talking a little bit about what is the current struggle? I know that there was a rally last week, um, and it was about a $3.5 billion budget to build a new prison um, in Lancaster. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, why don't you do the backstory, and then what is the status of that at the moment? Sure. Uh, so L.A. County has approved a $3.5 billion jail expansion plan for two new jails. So one of the jails is a women's jail that would be out in Lancaster. And the second jail would be a replacement to Men's Central, and that is being billed as a mental health jail. And that will cage both men and women uh, with mental health issues. And so this battle against the $3.5 billion jail expansion plan has been going on for nearly a decade. Justice LA is the coalition that has been leading the work for the last couple of years. And before that, LA No More Jails was the coalition that was fighting back against the jail expansion plan. So last week was significant because for the first time, the LA Board of Supervisors unanimously decided to put on the brakes and re-examine the jail plan. There were a lot of issues with Miraloma. Miraloma is the women's jail, um, including environmental issues, toxicity in the soil that causes an incurable disease called valley fever, the distance for families uh, from L.A. City proper. It would take at least three hours each way by public transit and several hours um, by car. And then the programming issue, which uh, Supervisor Sheila Kuehl uh, raised, which is that the programming, uh, as the sheriff has planned for the Miraloma jail, um, is not sufficient. Um, And so for a number of reasons, uh, creating a jail out in Lancaster would be harmful to the community. And so we've been pushing back around the idea that any jail would sufficiently address the needs of the community. Well, how do you deal with the fact that the, because I think that's the main point, is that often we're able to temporarily stop a project, which is great. I mean, it's already tremendous. Uh, did you, By the way, parenthetically, did you get, besides um, Sheila Kuehl and uh, um, Hilda Solis, did you get a third vote to stop it? Did all five vote? So the Miraloma Jail Project requires four votes in order to move forward. So they only needed um, two votes to stop it, which was Solis and Kuehl. But all of the supervisors uh, voiced their concerns with the Miraloma Project, and the chair of the Board of Supervisors, Janice Hahn, said that this was a collective decision to put the brakes on it. Uh, so although Kuehl was the first to, uh, to voice opposition, the, board, the board's stance is that it is a collective decision to pump the brakes. Uh, additionally, the new sheriff of Los Angeles, Alex Villanueva, has also voiced publicly his opposition to the Mira Loma jail project. And he has voiced privately to, uh, to community members, uh, including Justice L.A., that he would like to replace the, the mental health jail project with an actual mental health hospital. So there's mounting opposition to the jail project, 
including from law enforcement. So this is a very uh, a very important moment, a very exciting moment for, for those of us that are advocating against incarceration and also advocating for the alternative. So we want those funds to be used for education, to pay our teachers what they're worth. Uh, to have community-based mental health treatment, community-based alternatives, uh, housing, all of the things that we know actually keep our communities safe and healthy. Great. Let me just ask one clarifying question. So if I'm understanding you right, um, what's happening is that there's an actual plan that has been voted on, but then for each project they have to vote to put the funds to a specific part of that plan? Is that is that correct? Correct. They haven't allocated the funding contracts. Oh, so what okay. was planned, what they were planning on voting on uh, prior to Sheila Kuehl initiating the opposition was to assign the contracts uh, to specific companies. Right. But now, since they've come out in opposition, that, that process has stopped. Well, I think the great thing is that, you know, having worked to stop a lot of projects is that you have sort of two types of people there, and momentarily they work together to help you in the vote. One of the people who are more fundamentally opposed to the project on its basis, as you were saying, such as the new sheriff, and others who will accept, all right, that's a good point, we don't have enough programming, all right, that's a good point, maybe the drive is a factor, but then if they're really for the project, they start to work together to say, all right, let's start answering those questions because they're not fundamentally against the project. You know what I mean? And it could be two years later and they say, all right, we solved the, allegedly solved the problem. So I'm assuming that curbing the coalition are trying to get the people that are fundamentally saying, we don't want a women's prison, period. We don't want it in Lancaster or anyone else. And we don't really care about the programming because there's no good programming in prison. And, we don't, and there's no way you're not going to have it three hours away. So is that right that part of what you're trying to do is get those people who are opposed to it, but then also win over the people whose specific objections are not going to just go ahead to try to get it passed? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and this is one of the more exciting parts about What has transpired in the last week is during our meetings with uh, specific supervisors, there has been a narrative shift to decarceration as the ultimate goal. Uh So that's That's really exciting that they're not just engaging with us around the the jail plan itself, but also building out those alternatives to incarceration and funding them properly. And so to her credit, Sheila Kuehl's office uh, is is ready to to engage the community around the issue of pretrial reform. She had been taking the lead on bail reform in the last year, uh, but the work group that was assigned to investigate pretrial reform in L.A. County did not include any community-based organizations. Now, uh, her office has been engaging with us on the conversation. We created a policy brief for an alternative pretrial model that doesn't include harmful pieces like risk assessment that moves pretrial services away from probation, which is a very problematic agency right now in L.A. County, is being reviewed, um, and shifting it to agencies that are actually doing good work with community-based organizations, like the Office of Diversion and Reentry. They've been doing excellent work on the back end with the reentry.
country community. So we're trying to uh, build them up, scale them up to do that work um, in terms of the pretrial population. Because in L.A. County, 42 percent of folks in our jails are pretrial. They have not been convicted right, of anything. Right. Exactly. And, and so if we're able to divert 42 percent um of the population of our jails, that's already a significant reduction that completely undercuts any justification for jail expansion in the county. So that's one of the number of strategies that we're using in collaboration with the county so that we can reach our goal of decarceration and building up the type of Los Angeles that's centered in community-based alternatives that we want to see. Great. So um, let's... Let's go a little deeper because I understand um, the outward strategy and the tactics and all of it sounds great. But, um, you know, the one thing that's on the table is that the supervisors are a hard group of folks to actually pressure and a hard group of folks to organize and move. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your your organizing process, the on-the-ground process, and how is it – how are you gaining influence over, you know, the – the um, supervisors? Yeah, over the last uh, year and a half, the Justice LA Coalition has been uh, conducting a series of town halls in each district. Uh, We've been doing political education work uh, in each district so that folks understand the various issues that are raised by the jail fight campaign, organizing with folks on the ground like White People for Black Lives, like Trans Latina Coalition, who's part of our executive team, uh, Dignity and Power Now, a number of organizations that are part of the coalition that straddle different issue areas and different districts um, in order to mobilize our base and widen the base of folks in opposition to the jail fight. So some folks are coming to the jail fight from an immigration perspective. Others are uh, from a service provider uh, perspective, we've been organizing healthcare workers around this issue as well. Um, so, creating a broad-based coalition of folks uh, that align with our values, align with the idea that folks are best served in their communities and not in jails. And through that political education, through the town halls, uh, we've been able to mobilize folks to reach out to their to their supervisor and voice their, their concerns and their opposition. The supervisor's offices have been flooded with um, with emails and letters and, and phone calls from folks in each district uh, voicing their opposition to the jail plan. And as Sheila Kuehl uh, voiced during uh, the last Board of Supervisor meetings, it's been the advocacy of community that's created a different landscape um, and given them political coverage in my opinion, in order to take a bolder move. Even Barger, uh, who's one of the uh, more conservative members of the BOS, uh, voiced that the entire jail plan needed to be revisited and that she would prefer uh, Mira Loma to be flattened and turned into uh, low-income housing and affordable housing. That's a huge departure from uh, from the previous years uh, that the Board of Supervisors have commented on this jail plan. So it's definitely a change in landscape. And as a one um, community member uh, who provided public comment last week said, you know, that they were able to flip Orange County, so they will be able to flip Lancaster and that in the Inland Empire area 
if uh, the supervisors don't shift and align with the needs of the community. And that's that's a trend that we're seeing, and we're seeing them responding to the advocacy of community in a very different way. I mean, I think that's great. I think one of the challenges is that from the point of view of the Strategy Center, for instance, is we have not had the same positive responses, which is great what you've done. I mean, we have a campaign for free public transportation, and we turned out 500 people at a public hearings about five years ago, and we could not get Eric Garcetti and Mark Ridley Thomas and Zev Yaroslavsky to even lower the fare from 100 to $75 a month. We have a campaign for no police in the schools, no police on the trains and buses. Uh, we have a campaign for uh, stopping the attacks on black passengers and for no cars in a way. And I think what you're saying is, first of all, the results are terrific, but the concept that if you just mobilize, that you shift consciousness is not always the case because like Sheila Kuehl is very hostile to the strategy center and we've reached out to her so many times. So one of the problems we have is that it's great what you've done. I mean, because we sh- this is our struggle too, you know I mean? Getting rid of the women's prison mm-hmm. is, your, is not just your struggle. We, we think there's a great victory for the movement, but we haven't had the history, or I'll put it the other way, We've had people in the movement who say, well, I had a really good experience, and I don't want to get in trouble with that elected official by going over to help your cause because she doesn't either like your group or she doesn't like your cause. And then people say, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to try to win my cause. And uh, we need more help to have a more unified movement because we're Mm -hmm. organized issue by issue. And sometimes a person could be great on unions at a hotel and terrible on immigration or, you know, so not that you could say, but what do you think some of the lessons were? We're very proud of you. I mean, we want this, you know, this is a big, big victory. But how do you think we can build a movement in the city where we have a more unified agenda and the same groups are going to fight for a more unified agenda. I guess that's one question I had. Yeah, I think you raised a, a really important point um, around being able to raise issues that are that are cross movement. Um, I think one strategy that we've been utilizing is around redefining what public safety means. Um, so public safety has historically been referred to as an issue of policing. So police keep us safe, law enforcement keep right. us safe, etc. And so what we've been working on is a narrative shift around that. So public safety means properly funding public health. Public safety means properly funding things like transportation, making it accessible. Um, those All of those things are part of the public safety narrative that we're trying to push. So when we're advocating against jails, we're also trying to advocate for the things that we do want. And so integrating those demands um, of the strategy center around transportation, around access to education, around uh, proper pay and wages, integrating that into the larger struggle uh, for um, against uh policing against incarceration is really important. And that's one thing that uh, CURB has been working to do across the state 
um, since our inception, really bringing in different uh, areas of the movement, bringing in different issue areas, um, and tying them together as one larger struggle for liberation. Um, so, and, we, and we've welcome. had that we've had that positive relationship. By the way, I think you're absolutely right that we are. I don't know if the strategy center is officially in the curb group, but we've worked with curb on the. Uh, decarceration of truancy tickets and in the high schools and on the getting rid of willful defiance and uh, getting rid of the M16s and the tanks and the uh, grenade launchers from the school system. So I think the main point I'm trying to say is that, you know, once upon a time we had a political party, whether it was a communist party or a Black Panther party or SDS and SNCC and CORE and, you know, and we sort of had a unified program, and now we don't. You know, I mean, we have more great campaigns, and I just want to say this is a great campaign. It's a tremendous victory to to even temporarily defeat this horrible women's prison, you know, and to have some breakthroughs on decriminalizing mental health problems, which began under Reagan. So, you know, big props to you all, you know. I just was adding the other piece of it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. But you're absolutely right. Um, being able to link to other campaigns and, and other parts of the movement is imperative, um, and we can't lose sight of that. And so, like I mentioned, Justice LA has been targeting and stopping this jail plan, but we are working to integrate all those other demands that our community needs uh, into the campaign as well. And so that has ref- that has been reflected in, in the broad base of the coalition um, and in our work uh, to push for properly funding alternatives. So one big piece of our pretrial model that we're, that we're trying to move through the county is scaling up community-based organizations to provide services uh, to the community. So identifying the organizations that may be small, that may not have been able to successfully acquire money from the county because of of capacity, being able to scale them up, funnel money from the county to them um, and to the communities most impacted by incarceration to provide those services and to really be the leaders in building up that alternative model for Los Angeles. Well, thanks. It's great having you on. Uh, Yvette, is it Ale? Is that how you pronounce it? Did I get it right? Ale. Uh-huh. Ale. Correct. Uh, so let me ask you this. Um, in your last summary to everybody of Sometimes what happens, I think you know, is in movements that we win victories and then people don't realize that this is a moving train and that the word goes out, hey, I heard they won, they defeated the women's prison, and then people move on, not knowing that this is not won. This was a tactical Mm -hmm. victory that's going to involve a lot of other moves, right? So why don't you tell us what are the next moves you're trying to make and how can people help and how can people reach you? Yes. So there are a couple of things uh, that folks can engage with in the coming weeks. So first off, the supervisors need to hear from you. So if you are in L.A. County uh, and you um, have the ability to email or uh, call your supervisor or send them a letter, uh, please do. Thank them for their uh, position on the Mira Loma jail of stopping the plan uh, to revisit to revisit uh, alternatives. Uh, please reach out and say thank you, and also reaffirm that 
it doesn't it's not enough to move the the women's jail out from Lancaster to a location closer to LA that what women really need and what people inside women's jails really need is community-based services here in their communities. So please reach out. And the second piece is there will be hearing the jail plan again on the 29th. And so if you're able to come to the Board of Supervisor meeting on the 29th and pro- provide public comment. If you're out in Lancaster, if you're uh, if coming downtown isn't accessible to you, uh, in Lancaster there is the ability to go to a library where you can be beamed in to the BOS uh, and provide public comment there. Um, and we have the information on that on our website. Um, and I could also send it to you if you can post it uh, for your listeners. That would be great. Is that like, uh, so is, that like, pu- is that like beaming in Scotty? Is that like uh, people <laughs> coming in off Star Trek? Not quite. Not, <laughs> Not quite. It's, quite. It's, um, you'll, you'll, your image, it's a video. It's like a Skype call. <laughs> I see. And you can be Skyped in. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I, I think the movement should be upping our game so we can just transmute people from all over the county uh, through disassembling their cells and then reassembling them at the county supervisors. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, my goodness. That would be excellent. <laughs> All right, so let's get some <laughs> One t- day. All right, one day. So thanks so much for your work. Uh, how do we reach you? Uh, you can reach me at Yvette, that's I-V-E-T-T-E, at curbprisonspending.org uh, with any questions around how to get involved in the jail fight. You can also go to justicelanow.org, and you can sign up to get our emails. Uh, so you can hear the latest on the campaign and how you can plug in on the ground. Say the last one again. I want to explain the, the latter to the people. Say it is it Justice LA. Will you tell us about the email list, which I want to explain? Sure. Yeah, justicelanow.org. And you can sign up on our website to receive our email blast. And that will out our email blast give information on upcoming actions, on our political education events, um, and how you can plug in on the ground. I think the reason that's important is, you know, I, I'm signed up to about 40 or 50 groups, and um, I don't know how, but I basically do read them. And one reason I read them is because I'm trying to get a sense of a campaign, since I'm a campaign organizer, so... It'll say, you know, this was passed today, but next Tuesday there's another one coming up, and you got to go to this board meeting. And then, wait a minute, she just changed her vote. Uh, she was pressured by so-and-so. Make sure you call her. I find it interesting besides, you know, and it, then for my organization, the Strategy Center, I call Channing and Elmo Gomez and Barbara Ladon, and I forward this and say, oh, my God, can we do anything about it? And then we try to get people on our radio show voices from the front lines, uh, Yvette, what I would ask in return is we're trying to build up the listener base and the subscription base of voices. Our radio show is called Voices from the Frontlines. Our website is voicesfromthefrontlines.com. And what we're trying to do is get like 25 people from Curb to be on our website because our website is putting out, like, you're on it, and then all this show will be up on our website. 
So then Curb can use it and the Prison Coalition can do a link to the website. And we're also trying to do it as a podcast. So our problem is people come on the show and they want the show, but they don't do enough to help us build the base of voices so that next week if we're talking about the teacher strike or black studies, that you would be catching our weekly uh, email blast. Could we work together mm-hmm. for trying to get signups out of the two coalitions you're part of to go on the, the Voices site and, and get more support for us? Yeah, we'd be happy to share that information out to our membership base. Great, 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 great. So, yeah, it's going to be on our website this Friday. Um, normally the last Tuesday show is on there. And then we're also on uh, Facebook. You said a podcast, and I forgot the name of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Eric Man Speaks, and at Voices from the Front Lines on Instagram. Um, and then most importantly is we're also on SoundCloud. We're trying to move, you know, into the next century, and... Uh, SoundCloud is very popular with podcasts nowadays, so we upload our show every week to SoundCloud. All right. And, and Yvette, so you have a couple of days to work on this, right? Yeah, the 29th is um, our our big day at the Board of Supervisors. So if folks can support with calls to the supervisors between now and then, writing emails, that would be fantastic. All right. And you'll do the same for us. Yes, absolutely. All right. Great having you on Voices from the Frontlines. Uh, Ricky, why don't we take a short break, and then we're going to come back with Kerti Bauernwall, an old friend and comrade who's going to be talking about the United Teachers of Los Angeles and the strike that's been imposed on them in many ways. That was good. Some new music. Um, Eric Mann, you're back on Voices from the Front Lines. You're on the National Movement Building Show. And I'm in studio with Channing Martinez, the producer and associate co-host and all the different titles he has. And with our uh, friend, Tim Bratton, who's going to be taking over the show next Tuesday. So I want you to get to know him. And he's uh, until then, he's... Uh, just listening. This is his first day of training. So uh, say hello, Tim. Hello out there. Thank you, Eric. All right. So see, Tim thought he was going to be a fly on the wall, but we promoted him. Every, t- every time the break, I keep escalating his responsibilities. So he's going to have a massive stress attack. But I tell you, he'll never come back in studio again. But yes, he's a cool guy, and we're very happy to have him. And we like listeners 
you know, Tim took the initiative to say he'd like to come in studio. And if you would like to, um, we could talk about a premium for KPFK, but it's if you're a regular voices listener and supporter and you participate in the fun drives and just care about us, Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com, info at TheStrategyCenter.org, and we'll check you out, and we'd love you to join us in studio. So now we have this very big and critical strike. Uh, we're on the on the phone with Kerti Baronwall. Kerti, are you here? Hi, Eric. I'm here. All right. Well, it's interesting because the, the Strategy Center among other things, has this thing called the National School for Strategic Organizing, where we're trying to build a multi, uh, of course, multiracial, but multi-generational deep bench, you could say, uh, you know, an army of organizers who are politically conscious, who break with narrow trade unionism or narrow community organizing to have a more uh, radical vision. And we're happy to say that Alex Caputo-Pearl, the president of the United Teachers of Los Angeles, is a graduate of the program. And then Esperanza Martinez, who is also working with UTA, uh, helped set up this meeting, and she's a graduate of the program. And now Kerti Baronwall, who absolutely helped me teach a class first at Oberlin, Ohio, and then came out to be also a graduate of the National School for Strategic Organizing, is on the show today. So... As we go into our 30th anniversary, Kirti, which is May 4th of this year, and I do hope you could come, uh, pretty cool what we built together. Wow. It is pretty cool. Um, I have been thinking about you a lot and your mentorship and the mentorship that I got at the Chatty Center. I'm so grateful for that. So I carry all of that work with me on the picket lines. Um, yesterday, yesterday, I've <laughs> been thinking about the Strategy Center a lot, so... Um, you are present with all of us on the picket lines in Los Angeles at our schools. And you are present with us. I mean, it's really important to understand, if you can't come on the 4th, that we're working on a kind of legacy idea of all the people who built, you know, it's a 30-year organization. And we're starting to really think through of all the key people who helped to build it. And there's probably 100 real people who gave, you know, two, three, four, five years of their life to build that organization. We didn't get from one to 30 by everybody coming for six months. I mean, the people who came made a major commitment. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll talk about that, Kirti, and it's great to see you, you know, and your daughter. Uh, let's get to this strike, and uh, I want to make a couple of opening comments, if that's okay, Kirti, just for a few. Sure, and then, of course. And then I'd like you to jump in, as you always do. Um, I think the first thing I was thinking about is how, um, you know, America is built on so many racist and ridiculous myths. And one of them is the ostensible love of teachers, you know, that especially white folks, you know, they all go, oh, if it wasn't for Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Brown and, you know, who taught me in third grade, I would not be the great person I am today. Uh, But then when Mrs. Gomez or Ms. Washington or Ms. Barnwall try to get into the school system and say, we need a union. Oh, a union. Oh, then you're not really teachers. You're just out for yourselves. Uh, So it's almost like, you know, the concept of people self-actualizing 
and building a human a human that's a union of humans to say that the school board is our employer and if you are organized as our employer why can't we be organized as your alleged employees and then the employer and the board at times starts to denigrate the character of the teachers overpaid uh, i won't even repeat them all but you know there's a all of a sudden we have to weed out more bad teachers the union is protecting bad teachers bad te- they just keep repeating it now we got 640,000 students in the LAUSD they're about 60-70% latino they're about 9% black they're very low income apparently 30,000 human beings are teaching them and those 30,000 human beings are in the UTOA. And from everything most parents say, those as a group, those parents are doing, those teachers are doing a great job. And now when they go on strike for the first time in, I don't know, over 25 years, 30, 30 the attacks coming down on them and go back to the bargaining table. Why are you on strike? You know, that, so it just shows the superficial commitment of some board members, in my opinion, some elected officials. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, on the other hand, the parents who see the beneficiaries of the teachers and the students, I think, are strong supporters of the strike. So that was my introduction, Kirti. Do you think that's true? Do you think that the... Oh, I absolutely think that's true, Eric. Um, I was just reading some analysis about how the Los Angeles teacher strike is very different than the teacher strikes that we've seen across the country because Los Angeles is, our teaching force is about 70% Latino. Right. um, So majority of color. And then, you know, we, as the second largest school district in the country, represent about 85, 90% kids of color. So I think... um, There is a huge, we are in the battle of our lives for public education, public services, the public sector in the United States right now. Um, And it is absolutely racialized. It is absolutely an attack on working class people. And we're going to win because we know that this is a civil rights issue. We know that this is a continuation of the fights that have been fought before us for people of color to be treated with dignity, um, for the redistribution of wealth from billionaires and privatizers to working class communities of color. So absolutely, I think parents on the ground get that we're fighting for not just their students, but their communities. Um, And, you know, it's like the district is continuing to portray us as greedy and incompetent um, but I think the families that we work with, no different. Um, the relationships that we've built will carry us through this fight. And that was evident yesterday when we had 50,000 people show up in front of the district on the first day of the strike, when we had 30,000 teachers stop working um, and 10,000 parents and community members join us on, <laughs> you know, it rains 10 days in L.A. And no kidding. And you got all- five of them. And so yesterday it rained all day, and yet we had, you know, a tremendously successful first day of our strike. So I, I think absolutely we are being demonized because of the racial composition of our teaching force and of our students. 
Well, you know, um, Kirti, one thing is interesting because, again, at the Strategy Center, and not just at the Strategy Center, but it's important that we are a part of a of an anti-racist, anti-imperialist perspective on the United States, right? So we, uh, when we see class, we see class reflected in gendered and oppressed nationality peoples. So I've been reading a lot of these Marxist, and I say that in the bad word, uh, articles about this is a victory, this is gonna be a victory for the working class, working class, working class. They don't mention black, Latina, they don't mention women, they don't mention the kids being of color. It, they don't have a race lens. And while of course we believe there's a working class in the United States, without a racial lens in a white settler state, you're not gonna win the strike. And that the reason we think we can win the strike is because these are oppressed communities that are uh, being subjected to colonial education and the teachers are the ones who are fighting to elevate their own communities. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think race is a key factor um, in the way that the black and Latino and Asian communities have been treated in the U.S., the colonization and imperialism. And I think, um, you know, and you have spent a lot of time in your life organizing in unions and um, I think the traditional union doesn't recognize how race plays into, into class. And I think right. in this contract struggle, we are absolutely reframing that. Um, we are highlighting that this is not just about salaries. It is not just about health care. It is about undoing the economic damage and trauma that has occurred to black and Latino communities for decades and decades. Um, within public schools in Los Angeles. And I hope that it's a model for unions across the country. You know, it is a privilege at this point in history to even be a part of a union in the way that unions are being dismantled. And so I just feel like as union members, we have an even greater responsibility to not just fight for workers and working class people. And obviously teachers are not working class. We are, you know, we are solidly part of the middle class. Um, but for anybody who is in a union to push beyond sort of what do we as workers deserve, but how do we build the communities that we want to live in that are thriving and healthy and full of compassion um, and the resources that all of our communities deserve. And so I think... And Kirti, on that, let me, let me ask you this. I want to make sure. Tell us a little bit about what is this fight about class size? What, what you know, the, the LAUSD, this is a perfect example of what you were saying. The LAUSD is saying that they're giving $130 million out of the surplus to provide at least one nurse or one additional person per school, right? They're also saying that they're working. Kirti, uh, you okay there? On the yes, sound? I'm okay. here. I'm sorry. They're also saying that they're working, uh, they're going to have a one-year project, as I understand it, to reduce class size. Um, what would you say to that, to the listeners who are out there and say, you know, that sounds pretty good. What's your people's problem? What is your people's problem, as it says? What, what's the union's concerns about this? Well, 
Well, our problem is that Austin Butner, who's the district superintendent, has a plan to privatize LAUSD to break up the district into 32 mini-districts that compete against each other for funding based on high test scores. And that plan is to be rolled out with the next, within the next year. So makes total sense that he's saying it's for the next year, because after that, I will completely dismantle and privatize LAUSD. Um, they have a $2 billion reserve. They've been given $140 million more from the state of California. And we are saying we need that money now. Um, for And when we're talking about reduction in class size, I want people to understand that for teachers, the teaching that we do in the classroom is all built in the relationships that we have with our students. It's hard to build relationships with students when you have 40 young people in the classroom. Um, so those of you who are educators in any shape or form, as you are at the Strategy Center or any other place across the city, imagine if you're doing that work with people whose brains are still developing and you, your job is to build a relationship and teach them. Um, so if we look at private schools and schools that service wealthy white children, you're going to see classes where there's 12 and 15 children. But then when you're talking about black and Latino communities, 40 and 50 kids yeah. considered to be the norm. And what we're saying is that's not normal in any sense of the word um, to subject children to that type of neglect and that type of, um, I mean, I just would say disregard for their humanity, which is what racist political policies are based on. It's about not valuing the lives of people of color. Um, it's about not valuing the lives of queer people and women and saying that, you know, if we give you a little bit, you should be really happy with that. What's your problem? Yeah, um, and we're saying it's been that way for decades, and it's been a problem. And now we're uniting in Los Angeles to say we're not going to accept these kinds of substandard um, conditions for our students. And what do you think would be a victory look like, for instance, uh, just really briefly, when I, when I taught in Newark in 1967, yeah, there was a year called 1967, and it was in the middle of this thing called the 60s, and I was in an eighth grade public school, and I walked in, and there were 40 kids. They took, they called it team teaching. Uh, they took two classes, and they stuffed 20 and 20 into one. They gave them two teachers, but one teaching at different times. It was impossible to teach. They could barely fit in the class. And anyway, it's a long, long story. But the fact that 40 years later, we're still having the exact same struggle. What do you think a victory would look like? What can the union win, given Butner's, Butner's uh, aggressive plan to balkanize the school system? What's a victory would look like? I want to say this is not the end-all, be-all. Our contract demands are just, it's sort of baseline um, demands to begin the healing process and increasing equity in our communities. So we get that the 2 billion, the 340, whatever, 2 billion and 140 million is not going to reduce class size to where we want it to be. Right. You know, it's like we are, we're asking to start there 
Um, right now, with the proposal that they have, it would add either a counselor, a nurse, a teacher, or a librarian to wow. one school. Wow. So it's not all of those things. It's one right. Right. human being. And it may be some reshifting around, so it's not hiring new people to do that. Wow. Um, and so I, I do want people to be really clear about that. The district frames it as, look, we're giving them all these resources, and they're continuing to say no. It's not all these resources. Um, it's not using up the funds that they have. It's the biggest reserve that they've had in five years. Um, and then I want people to understand that when we're talking about servicing and teaching working-class Black, Latino, Asian-American children, the levels of trauma in these communities are so high. So, I mean, I used to teach middle school. I teach elementary now. I used to have children who would come to school on Mondays talking about family members being shot by LAPD. Um, I've had students come in talking about ICE taking family members away, um, detaining them, right? Like, children coming in talking about just devastating levels of trauma that they're witnessing in their communities. They are not coming into our classrooms ready to learn math and reading and writing on a daily basis. If they are not feeling safe, if they are homeless, um, if they are not feeling like their basic necessities are met. So the, the, the demand around counselors and nurses is just to sort of help children be able to get to that level when they're experiencing level two and three socio-emotional trauma to be able to come into a classroom and be able to focus and function. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you said that point um, because it, you know, it reminds me of the typical model of the colonizer colonizing country, right? They manufacture a problem and then they cut your resources to then solve that problem and then ask you what the problem is, right? And so what you're saying is they're doing that in school, right? They're, manuf- you know, they're, they're in our communities basically creating genocide in our communities through public transit, through funding of police, through funding of all these so- uh, services that are actually to then make our lives harder, right? And then taking away social services and then also cutting the actual services in school, um, much in the same way that they're actually doing around the border, right, where people are immigrating to the United States, trying to escape the very violence that was created in their country by the United States. Um, Absolutely. So I, I think that's so important that you said that. Absolutely. Is it Channing? Yes, it is. Hi, Channing. <laughs> Hi, Kirsten. You're supposed to, hey, you're supposed to introduce yourself, Channing. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> this is Channing. <laughs> Channing, do you have a last name? Martinez. Thank you. Yes, it's another one of your comrades from the Strategy Center. Channing and I run Voices together. We only have a few more minutes. I think, Kirti, but the, the point I think you're making, this is the voice you're listening to, by the way, is Kirti Barnwall, who we met. Oh, it would be interesting to reconstruct. Do you remember the year? Were you, you oh, were... I think it was 1996. Wow. No, 1996 was when I came out to L.A. I think I met you in 93, possibly. Yeah, when I spoke on campus, and then we did a class together, and then you came out. You helped to build Coalition for Educational Justice. I mean, I think what we're getting out of the strike is that you're going to win. You know, it's very important for the union to come out with a perceived political victory. And I think that the structural changes— 
given, you know, like, for instance, the $2 billion surplus, uh, the fight over that surplus is going to continue, right? The fight in Sacramento, uh, you know, how the MTA claims a surplus can't be used for buses, but it can be used for trains. The surplus, you know, can't be used for teachers, but it can be used for God knows what. So there'll be fight over the surplus. There'll be fight over getting a real cap on uh, class highs. There'll be a fight over stopping the 32 or 34 little uh, fiefdoms that they're going to try to set up. And the rating of public money, because what people don't understand is that I have, look, I don't like private schools, but if you want to do a private school, go build one. You know, just do it. Take your own money and have a private school, but don't come into the public schools. Take the money from the public schools, then call it something called a charter school where you're raiding basically public money and then you leave the public schools with even less money. So I think the goal is going to be that if the union and when the union wins to right away move to the next campaign on a more aggressive challenge to the privatization and to the charter schools. What do you think? Yeah, and that's a huge part of this contract fight. So again, it's it's a um, it will be the you know not the beginning steps. Obviously, people have been fighting against charters and privatization um, for a long time. But I think what we're trying to do again is say the six hundred million dollars that the charter industry is bleeding out of public schools needs to be returned to us. Um, so that we can service our students in the public sector with that. Because what they do is they take that money from us and then they blame public school teachers, That's mainly right. of color, about how we're not servicing our students and how, you know, teachers are the problem when they're making you hold one be- one arm behind your hand while you're trying to do your job. Um, and so I think, you know, Kirsten, cutting you off for a minute because you only have two minutes. Uh, how do we reach you? How do we make sure we can support? What's going on tomorrow morning? You know, if people wanted, is there a mass activity tomorrow? How do they reach the UTOA? Okay, I want to make sure you get that in. Sure. We, you can go to any Los Angeles Unified School in your neighborhood and join the picket line Good. from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the morning. Good. Um, you, tomorrow we'll be doing local actions. You can check the UCLA website at www.ucla.net. People easy. can also keep up with what we're doing by checking www.wearepublicschools.org. Um, please call the district. Please call Austin Butner at 213-241-7000. Hold on. That's a good one. Austin Butner. Say at 213-241-7000. He's got a nice number. 213-241-7000. Call him up. <laughs> call him. Tell him, to, tell him and our school board to use the funds that they have to meet the, the contract demands, and then to go with us to the state of California to demand more for our schools. This is not just about Los Angeles. This is about public schools across the nation. Um, this is a model for how we shift the narrative about the public sector and how we continue to put more resources into supporting um communities of color and working class communities so that 
we can thrive and self-actualize ourselves. You know, um, thanks, Garrett. Fight for the soul and heart of public education. So, whatever folks can do to support, we appreciate. And we are the fight for the soul of the cities, and we're supporting you at the Strategy Center. I think a line that I would encourage UTOA to consider is to say to Butner, "Don't say let's go to Sacramento to get some more money. Why don't you give us the money, and then we can go to Sacramento to replace it." Because say the last part again. Don't say let's go to Sacramento and look for money. Take the money out of the surplus and solve the problem. Then we can go to Sacramento to replace that surplus and get more money. Otherwise, he's asking the union to say, I have no money. Let's go to Sacramento. And that's not true. You do have money. You don't want to spend it. Money that you have right now. That's what I'm saying. And then after we use that, that's then what I'm we saying. find more. Because this is not going to solve the problem. The money that they have right now that they're saying is surplus is not going to solve all of the problems in LAUSD. Kirti um, Barnwell, absolutely need more. thank you for being on the show. We're really proud of you, proud of the relationship. Hope to see you May 4th at the 30th anniversary of uh, the Strategy Center. If you could get people at UTLA to go on our site, Voices from the Frontlines, and register so you'd be getting weekly emails, go on utla.net and check it out. Call Austin Butner. Uh, you can find it and go to any school from 7 in the morning till 9 in the morning and honk your horn and join them in the rain. And eventually Nina Simone will keep singing Here Comes the Sun if you do that. So with that, we wish you the very best. All power to the people. Kirti, thank you for everything. Thank you, Ricky. And we'll see you next week on Voices from the Frontline. Take very good care of yourselves. And he has not.